Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Outward. This is Slate's monthly show about LGBTQ life and culture. And while it is abundantly clear these days that a nasty chunk of this country really does not value our lives, I am getting by on the hope that our amazing, beautiful, formidable culture will see us through. I'm Brian Lauder. I'm an editor at Slate. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a senior writer at Slate. And I'm Jules Gill-Peterson, the crisis at the heart of lesbian culture. <laughs> no. <laughs> not. <laughs> not intentionally. Um, well, this month we are considering two big parts of the human experience, parenthood and, well, death. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, and lesbianism. <laughs> Uh, no, that was my attempt at a unifying theme. We do not have a theme this month. We don't <laughs> always need one. Uh, so 50 years ago this March, PFLAG, which stood for Parents, Family, and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, it's the group that you always see getting major cheers and pride parades, uh, was founded. And it's been a mainstay of the LGBTQ advocacy world ever since. We're going to use that anniversary to take stock of how the relationship between parents, parenthood, and queer people has changed over the last five decades, or how maybe it hasn't. Then we'll be joined by Mariette Sullivan, a scholar and author of the book Lesbian Death, a truly fascinating analysis of the cultural association between capital T, V, and capital L, lesbian, and that's the lesbian, and, well, death. Why is the lesbian and her bed, her spaces, her very identity always dying? Who's killing her? <laughs> Stay tuned to help us solve this mystery. We'll also have our usual round of prides and provocations and updates to the gay agenda. But first, let's see what y'all had to say about last month's episode and our thoughts and queries mailbag. Christina, <laughs> I understand that you were bringing us some feedback from IRL. Yeah, I did. So, <laughs> what do you got? Uh, a couple weeks ago, I went to a queer pinball tournament here in Washington, D.C. Oh, word. I'm not a pinballer, but my friend was organizing it, so I went to support. <laughs> and then this person who's a listener of the podcast came up to me. We hadn't seen each other since probably before the pandemic. You know, we're friends, but like not in close um, community. And she was like, hey, I loved your last episode, you know, between the poly stuff and the psychedelics. I felt like it was almost an episode for me personally. But I have to wonder <laughs> why you guys were using the term thruple, which feels like a very straight mm. way to refer to that relationship mm. formulation instead of the word triad. Oh my and gosh. she Ooh. was like, I was really surprised to hear that coming from Brian. Um, ah! So I thought uh, I'd give you a chance to respond. Hold out. <clears throat> I would love to respond to that. I actually do prefer the term triad, um, and that is what I we would use uh, for my relationship uh, sort of in normal life. Like if, if when we talk about it, I think that's what we use for the most part. Thruple, I, 
use more with like a little mm. bit of a wink or like tongue in cheek. Like I think it's, I think it just sounds kind of weird and silly um, and like unserious in some way in a way that triad doesn't. So I actually agree with, with our listener on that point. I think triad is a little more like, I don't want to say respectful, but just like grown up mm-hmm. somehow. Um, and I think it captures like thruple is playing off of yeah. couple, whereas tri- triad, whereas triad is its own shape, like it's its own you know geometry that actually does represent what my relationship looks like much mm-hmm. better. So uh, actually, I appreciate <laughs> that note and am am in an agreement oh, okay. about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. I think as somebody who's not in a triad i just i do like the word thruple in part because of the whimsy and because i do like portmanteaus and it does feel (laughs) a little bit like queering language to me but um Mm -hmm. yeah i will absolutely take that to heart and and you make a a good argument brian and uh Mm -hmm. Lindsay, thank you so (laughs) much for having the courage to approach me with an irl criticism at this fantastic (laughs) uh full of queer luminaries pinball tournament brilliant yeah, thanks so much, Lindsay. Um, if you, like Lindsay, have a thought or query for us, us or a criticism, uh, yeah, <laughs> cost us at brunch, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do. But or you could let us know at outwardpodcast uh, at slate dot com. Uh, we especially really love hearing your voices on the show. So if you are able to drop us a voice memo and share your feedback that way, we would uh, really, really appreciate it. We're going to be like the next uh, Kirsten Nielsen of like whatever Homeland Security getting yelled at at our fancy uh, DC steak dinners oh or something. Oh my God. Exactly. <laughs> On that note, I think it's time for us to share how we've been feeling in the past month uh, with our prides and provocations. Uh, Jules, why don't you kick us off? How are you feeling? Well, I'm sure there's plenty of pride, you know, beating somewhere in my heart, but, you know, okay, I'm provoked. But, you know, you're always provoked, Christina, so I feel like I'm in good company. No, I'm glad. Yeah, somebody else share the burden. Yes. I think we're all generally provoked right now. That's fine. (laughs) And, you know, I will say what I'm provoked by right now. It's been a noisy minute um, in the uh, general anti-LGBT, anti-trans um, great experiment and escalation that we're experiencing in this country. But I'm, I'm particularly provoked by, I don't know, I've been really busy the last few weeks. And one of the good side effects of that is I've spent a lot less time on Twitter and Instagram, which are really the only social media that I use because I'm old and tired. But Mm -hmm. every time I log on, I've been like, got to log off immediately because I've been feeling this like, I don't know if it was just having the perspective or the distance. I've been feeling really provoked by what is clogging up my social media feeds Mm. around anti-trans nonsense versus what is like happening in a kind of like capital N news sense that I'm talking about, you know, some of the states passing pretty scary anti-authoritarian laws. Tennessee passed the first anti-drag bill. You know, there are these laws escalating. Like there are a few I'm really, really terrified by. Like Arkansas's Senate, state Senate passed a bill a new bathroom bill, like a pretty vicious bathroom bill Mm -hmm. that I understand to mean that like, if I were at Tennessee, you know, I don't know, like um, at a restaurant and I went into the bathroom and I'm like peeing inside a stall and a child walked into the bathroom, 
oops, I'm a criminal now and can go to jail. Like, this is not okay, right? Um, Chase Strange has been talking about Mm -hmm. how as a parent, like, he literally could not go into the bathroom with his own kid. That would be illegal in Arkansas. So, like, really scary stuff happening. So scary that it's almost, like, unbelievable. And I, like, really want there to be a lot of, like, media coverage about this because, like, I think it's easy to presume that things like that aren't happening because they're just so absurd. But what do I see on my social media every day all the live long days this weird inside baseball style pundit Mm. wars going on we're just like people are really barking at and stuck endlessly replying to jesse single and jonathan chait Mm -hmm. over the weirdest strangest Mm -hmm. like optics driven conversations about this media story about a st louis you know gender clinic that was like a really bad story that got like you know debunked when the sources came forward and then like these two guys who like are professional pundits and journalists are just like i can't let this one go and it's like everyone online is yelling and that's like all anyone is talking about it's so bizarre and esoteric and so like such a distraction and like i'm just like provoked i'm just angry like literally i'm just provoked i don't have like a, mm. i'm not trying to wag my finger and tell well, i am but i'm not trying to tell people what to do i'm just like <laughs> maybe stop like venerating these weird pundits like need to distract us with the most bizarre arcane byzantine conversations that have like nothing to do with anything like particularly real it's truly wizard of oz don't look behind the curtain nonsense and like mm-hmm. maybe let's just focus on these evil fucking bills that are coming through because like people's lives are being ruined and i'm just it's just making me very like old man yells at angry cloud energy i'm so sorry to be abe simpson on the pod for a moment but i'm just feeling real (laughs) cool about this yeah yeah i mean also like the the like transgender is oh my god that like 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 semantics were like we want to get in get we don't have time to get into that but like (laughs) yeah same same like why like why are we like talking about this so much yeah and it does feel like one of the ways that like they in scare quotes um (laughs) win is by because it's like we have these um like our attention is so scattershot and everything seems like a disaster Mm -hmm. or like the most important thing or like we can't get let it go and at least journalists are the ones who will actually might reply to us. Um, whereas, you know, the governor of Tennessee or whoever doesn't give a crap what we're talking about. Yeah. Brian, what's up with you? What's going on inside that pretty little head of yours? <laughs> oh, <laughs> thank you. I wasn't feeling uh, oh, like my hair was really great good. today, but I appreciate that. Yeah. So I am proud this month. Uh, speaking of the governor of Tennessee, I am proud this month of all the uh, Internet sleuths who are digging up the drag pasts of mm-hmm. our uh, mm-hmm. these Republican politicians. Um, so in case you missed it, the governor of, indeed, Tennessee, the state that actually signed the first of these drag bans into law, his name's Bill Lee of Tennessee again, uh, once, ad- once enjoyed, according to an alleged 1977 yearbook photo, cavorting around in a cheerleader's uniform, pearl necklace, and a bad mm-hmm. wig, uh, now this this photo is not a good look on a number mm. of levels, uh, and the <laughs> and the human rights campaign bought out a full page ad in the Tennessean, uh, oh. is a newspaper, to sort of make a point of the hypocrisy, right? And other similar, let's say, herstories uh, have started to be <laughs> unveiled about about a lot of these politicians as well. Now, okay, I don't 
think that we should be flattering Lee and his cohort by really thinking of them as being part of the same universe as our actual queer drag performers, like obviously. And of course, like an embarrassing photo is not enough to stop the assault that, that trans folks and, and queer folks are under right now. But I do think this kind of activism is useful in two ways. One, it is fucking emotionally satisfying mm. to mm. make fun of these people. To point out how craven and just full of shit they are, that like, I think that is like food for the soul right now. So I think that's actually powerful. The second thing is that it is actually, I think, smart PR. Uh, the truth is that I think most of this country knows that these laws are ridiculous and wrong, or at least cynical for like all kinds of reasons. And so I think everything we can do to highlight all of that is worthwhile. Uh, I think it's possible for public opinion, maybe more than anything else to slow or, or maybe halt uh, an offensive like this. So it is good strategy, I think, to highlight the mendacity going on as much as possible. So again, pride to the sleuths who are, who are doing this, uh, this research, because I think it's actually more powerful than we might think. <laughs> Christina, what do um, you got? Well, I have a double header. I'm provoked and proud. Um, so yeah. late last month, Gallup, you know, the survey queens, released their <laughs> annual report on the LGBTQs. So basically, whenever Gallup does a poll on an issue, they ask if the person is LGBT or straight, which we mm. know are not really two sides of hmm. the same coin, but that's what they ask. Um, then they end up <laughs> aggregating all that data and they tell us every year how many of us there are. So the new data, mm -hmm. which is from the year 2022, that's such a weird way to say that year. Let me say it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the year 2000. In the new data, which is from 2022, we clocked in at 7.2% of the U.S. population. Wow. Which is actually double where we were when Gallup first started asking people about a decade ago. Uh -huh. um, it's been growing actually pretty rapidly in the past couple of years. So just mm -hmm. from 2020 to 2021, it went up 1.5 percentage points, which is the mm. steepest year-over-year -year growth ever, um, which I believe um, accounts for all the people who had some thinky-thinky time during the pandemic and right. realized that they were queer mm -hmm. trans, which we all know people who did. However... Yeah. Here comes the provocation. Mm. The very next year, so the the year that is reflected in the previous data, so from 2021 to 2022, according to this poll, we barely gained anyone new. We <gasps> only went up one tenth of a point. 2021, we were 7.1 percent. Now we're 7.2. That's not mm. enough. So there's no, for mm. me, there's no other way to interpret this other than we're falling down on the job. Um, we need to yeah. redouble our efforts to make our lifestyle look rewarding and fulfilling mm. and highly adoptable. And <laughs> as we know, like fighting back against transphobia and homophobia is obviously part of that, but I'm open to other ideas like more thirst traps, more public makeouts. Mm -hmm. um, we should all be brainstorming. Um, but here comes another pride, especially for the three <laughs> of us. So Jeff Jones, who's a senior editor with Gallup, told The Advocate that, you know, obviously part of the growth in our numbers has to do with younger people coming of age and, you know, joining the cohort of adults that is measured and younger, gener younger generations are more likely to identify as LGBT. But Jeff said that the only real growth within a generation 
has come from millennials. We're the only generation that has seen a major increase since they started surveying on this topic in 2012, which by the way, is really late for them to start surveying on this, but whatever. (laughs) So actually this last year, Gallup found a slight decrease in LGBT identified Mm. members of Gen Z. So they were at a little bit less than 20%. And Gen X also went down a little. Maybe it's maybe Gen Z is kind of oh, leveling no. off, but not us. Mm. We climbed from 10.5% of millennials to 11.2%. The year mm. before that, we got more than a full percentage point of growth. It's been <sighs> steady. It's still going. Obviously, I think it in, in part has to do with the fact that our coming of age kind of straddled that period where support for gay rights was rising, yes. gay culture was becoming more mainstream. But I think we should focus on the explanation that we're doing the best job of recruiting our peers so good for us yeah yeah gay millennials not no it doesn't industry <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. All Should right. we P-flag? Shall we P-flag? Shall we? Yeah. Flag. Um, let's flag. All right. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of PFLAG. That's parents, family, and friends of lesbian and gays for all of you following at home. This organization was founded after Jean Manford boldly chose to march with her gay son, Morty, at the 1972 Christopher Street Day Parade in New York, a.k.a. Pride. Morty had actually been at the Stonewall Inn during the riots in 1969 and by 72 was the president of the Gay Activist Alliance. And so in 1973, really kind of radicalized by the way that he was being so homophobically treated for his unabashed gay politics, his mother, Jean, became an activist too, but of like a totally new kind at the time, just to say a mother whose love for her gay child would serve as the spark for organizing the families of LGBT people, not just to embrace their loved ones like Jean had, but actually to learn how to become strong allies to their gay and lesbian family. So we're not actually going to dive into the whole history of PFLAG today, but we thought that the anniversary was a really poignant opportunity to reflect on sort of what's changed in the last 50 years what maybe hasn't changed as much as we thought. And just to sort of ask what queer and trans in terms of parenting means today in 2023, because, you know, 50 years ago, it was considered pretty radical just to proclaim your love and acceptance of a gay family member, not to mention stick your neck out for them politically. 
at that time, gay and trans youth were basically expected to experience rejection by their families kind of as the price for coming out. And running away from home was such a well-established trajectory that truly like young queer people in the 70s knew exactly which cities and even neighborhoods to seek out if they wanted to find their new family. But it seems like today there's at least some degree of expectation that queer and trans youth can or maybe even ideally should grow up in their natal families. And queer and trans people are also recognized as being parents themselves. So those are two really, really big shifts. And I think probably PFLAG, we could say, has shifted along with those generational changes. But they're also dealing with so many attacks today that feel really reminiscent of Gene Manford's era. Anti-LGBT politicians are claiming parental rights is one of their central alibis, but they're also aggressively targeting parents who do love their gay and trans children, right? Investigating those families, putting parents in prison, allowing the state to take trans kids away from their loving families. All of that is on the table at this moment in states like Texas and Florida. So clearly, parenthood and the meaning of loving our family is deeply contested today, even 50 years later. So... Christina, Brian, let's dig into this little 50th anniversary. Um, And I thought maybe, you know, to start about, whoops, and I thought maybe to start, we could talk about what we think actually has changed, right? Compared to 1973, which, you know, was 50 years ago. um, (laughs) Where do you think we've kind of ended up in terms of like the general acceptance of queer kids, trans kids by parents and families? Um, And I'm kind of curious like if we see a big shift, but also if like our suspicion antenna are being raised about whether maybe there's like a little bit of a gap sometimes between our cultural perception, the story that we tell ourselves or would like to believe, I guess it depends a lot on who the we is there, but like, you know, um, as a culture, you know, American culture, American liberals, but then also like in the LGBT community, is there a gap kind of between our perception of how acceptance has changed um, and perhaps what reality is? But but what do we think has changed to start? I mean, I can start. I mean, I, so, you know, obviously you can't, I don't think you can understate the like sea change in the direction of acceptance over those 50 years. However, speaking as a Southerner, I am always quick to say in discussions like this, that that acceptance, uh, that shift is super uneven and geographically Mm. distinct, right? Mm. So the urban sort of coastal or even maybe northern ideas of where we're at just I don't think are representative of the way things are elsewhere in the country. And I think, you know, Mm. we're seeing, you know, this this spate of um, anti-trans and queer uh, legislation, I think, shows that sort of in, in, in stark relief. But that's I think that's been true even back during the, you know, the halcyon mm-hmm. days of the Obama administration or whatever, where we thought we were at the end of end of uh, gay politics. Like, right. it, it just wasn't true. And like where I was, you know, I'm sure things back home in South Carolina, where I'm from, are much better now than they were, whatever, 15 years ago when I was in high school. But uh, mm-hmm. I guarantee you they're not as good as they are in New York. And so mm-hmm. I think I think the idea of um, familial acceptance or the progress on familial homophobia and transphobia is is really it's it's spotty. Um, it's not something that's like a a holistic narrative that applies to everywhere all at once. I mean, I also think that polarization 
mm-hmm. has increased in that I don't think it's like some areas are are progressing faster than others. I think it's that some places are regressing now such that like today Mm. you're either like supportive of your queer kid. You have a lot of like visible narratives that help you understand them. And there are so many resources to help you or you've been like red pilled by the extreme right. And you (laughs) think your kid is being groomed by Moana or whatever, which like that sort of narrative didn't, I think fully exist before Mm. It, it was like, you know, a lot of like, violence obviously of parents against their queer kids and also like i don't understand you and what is this and stuff like that but now there's like just uh people who are consuming like fox news or any of the Mm -hmm. even worse uh quote-unquote news outlets um have many more reasons to be suspicious of or antagonized by a kid that comes out that said i almost feel like talking about kids isn't the right way to talk about yeah. P flag in the past because yeah. I think in the past yeah. it has, there just weren't as many kids coming out. And so it was more exactly. about accepting like your queer adult child. Yeah. Um, I looked back a little huh. bit at what was P flag doing even 20 years ago. Yeah. And one campaign that they had, which actually was in New York City primarily in like subway ads and stuff, there were there was a print ad campaign featuring famous people and their gay relatives. Oh my God. And so it was posters of like Cindy mm. Lauper and her sister, right. Ben Affleck and his cousin, Rosario Dawson and her gay uncle Frank. And that feels like a joke to me, like a got milk <laughs> campaign or something. Right. Like what, what exactly were people trying to get at? Or like what benefit would it like provide for people to be seeing like, oh, Ben Affleck has a gay cousin. Maybe I cannot hate my gay cousin. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was just a reminder to me of how desperate people felt back then mm-hmm. uh, at a time when Rosario Dawson's gay uncle Frank might be like, sure, use me for this ad showing that I'm like worthy of my own family's love. Right, right, um, right. And the creative firm that produced this campaign described PFLAG as a primarily heterosexual nonprofit that helps people process the information that someone close to them is gay. So it starts from the premise that it's traumatizing to have a family member come out to you. Uh, And I, I think that has changed a lot. I think the, that there is less of a presumption now that if your adult child comes out to you, it's going to be traumatizing. Mm, But the, the premise that it stemmed from that it's like traumatizing to have someone come out to you is like a corollary to the, um, presumption or strategy that having someone close to you who is gay is going to make you more likely to support yeah. queer political yeah, causes. Yeah. That has been proven true in some ways, um, but not others. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always wonder um, in terms of like what has changed, like you asked Jules, people like Dwayne Wade and uh, Gabrielle Union who have been super visible in support of their trans daughter and are also two of the more famous people in the country and especially Dwayne Wade in in sports in like a notoriously Mm -hmm. uh, homophobic and transphobic industry. I do wonder what sort of impact they're having Mm -hmm. on people's like way, way back in the unconscious part of their brains assumptions Mm -hmm. and whether people are, are, whether seeing somebody love a family member who is trans might change the way they believe, Mm. you know, kids should be treated. But again, it just goes back to the idea that like now it feels like the, 
battleground, so to speak, is definitely around children. Mm. Um, and with trans kids, clearly, it's just like the first stepping stone, a way to like, uh, raise people's fear and anger to then be used to uh, be weaponized against all trans people. Mm. Um, but still, like, I think that is a major way in which maybe PFLAG's mission or like their most pressing um, needs have changed. I'm so glad you brought that up, Christina. It's so well said. And it's true, I think. I mean, I know, you know, through the work that I do, I'm, I, you know, feel lucky to sometimes partner with PFLAG folks, you know, and a lot of them now are parents of trans youth, or that's like an important constituency. But just that actual shift, right, between like, the the children, you know, back in the 70s are adults, right? Yeah. And so it's like, mm-hmm. learning to love adults is like very different, right? Than learning to accept and love kids who might And still... continue to parent them. Exactly. And I think that is like a really interesting shift that like, you know, I know PFLAG is reckoning with, but when we just think about that culturally, right, is like really fascinating to me. Um, and I think it helps explain why maybe, although some of what's going on today in terms of the targeting, right, of families who are supportive seems kind of like the 70s, it's actually pretty different, right? Yeah. Um, but I also think maybe that that cultural perception gap too has to do with, yeah, childhood, right? Like I was just mm. thinking about one thing that's really different, even then like when I was a kid, is like there were not like, yeah, I could still remember like what I watched, like, you know, that infamous episode of Degrassi, The Next Generation, because I'm Canadian, um, where Marco <laughs> is like coming out to his Italian family and they're like, oh my God, you can't be gay, right? And I was like, this is so weird. I remember thinking that because I just never seen a story like that. And I was like, this is weird. Like I didn't, I don't remember thinking it was like moving or anything, but like that genre has actually exploded. There's literally yes. so much media that's yeah. like the drama about like, can parents accept and love their gay kids and now they're trans kids. And like, I don't, I'm not like trying to throw shade at that entire genre. Although I often think it's really bizarre um, because it's so dramatic and it's like, it's so presumptive that we know exactly how that always unfolds. But also it's like the narrative drama there is really like the root drama is just about like children, like children constantly don't live up to what we expect of them. And that Mm. causes like, people to behave really badly, like really badly, right? And I think there is a big difference between like, you know, like it's embarrassed, like, let me put it this way. I think there's a kind of embarrassment that I wish would accrue to parents when they like can't like love their adult like children. Like what's wrong with you? You just throwing away this relationship? Like how selfish and sad and small are you? But then like to do that to a kid you should actually feel humiliated and ashamed of yourself, but actually it's totally culturally tolerated yeah. to be like, this is so hard for me. And like, and, and you know, the way that, I mean, I don't mean to say that it's untrue. I think people genuinely feel this way, but like how parents often feel when their kids come out as trans, especially where they're like, I just feel like the kid I knew is dead. Mm-hmm. And like all these horrible things. And then they just, I know this from talking to therapists who of course, to see trans youth, in a supportive um, therapy session, also, you know, both have to have parental permission, who's paying the bill, also Mm -hmm. often end up realizing, like, the kid is 
fine. The kid is being mistreated by the parent and now the parent needs to be in therapy. But like as a therapist, how do you negotiate that? That's really hard. And just all the ways that parents are like totally okay acting out all of their aggression and unresolved feelings about their kid and about gender on their own trans kid. It's like, this is not cool. And if this person was 25, they could also walk away from you, right? But like, I just think that that's a really interesting distinction where again, I'm like, part of what has shifted is because now we understand that like LGBT people can come out in childhood and therefore aren't just running away from home or surviving until they can move away when they grow up, right? We actually are confronted with a more complicated situation than was the like presumption in the 1970s. And I think that's like worth thinking about, right? When we cut through all the moral panic, like I really do have serious questions for how parents like treat their LGBT kids, you know, not like because I think there's a one size fits all model, but like, yeah, I think that's part of the point. Part of what's so powerful about um, gay and trans kids is they they antagonize the power imbalance between parents yeah. and children mm. because they're like, hey, you're wrong about something. Yeah. I have an identity that like grew either in spite of you or just like in spite of our culture, right? Yeah. And I just and, like fully well, independently and, of you. Yeah. And it forces the parent to hang up their ego, like in a lot of ways. Totally. Right? Like, if you, like if you're, I mean, that's, I think that's the big challenge is like, if, if mm. you're the type of parent who has, is using your child as like a projection of yourself, yes. then that's, that is going to be very, it may, may indeed be traumatizing. Like it's not a trauma mm. that's like, that we should, you know, entertain, but it, it is indeed, that is the challenge. It's like, you have to yeah. disinvest yourself from your child in a way that a lot of people, uh, I think don't expect to. And that is what, I mean, I think the PFLAG model was a little bit about that. It was about like, okay, yes. Like let's bring you into a circle of other parents and talk about that. Right. And like help you process that away from your, away from your child. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it was effective, I think in a lot of cases, but you wonder how effective it would be now. I don't know. I also, I was mm. trying to think back to when I came out to my parents. Yeah. I think I blocked out a lot of it, but I'm pretty sure I sent them a link to a P flag thing. Did to you? Be like, yeah. If you have any questions, just like read this, read these pamphlets yeah. or something. Good because choice. it was just so much easier than being like, come to me with all of your dumb mm-hmm. questions and anxieties. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they ever looked at them or anything but it did Mm. feel nice to be like there's somebody out there to deal with this that doesn't Mm. have to be me um yeah and And i I feel like that that is an important thing that like parents and art like i think pflag actually is doing a lot of that these days right being like especially for trans kids like hey you know if you download all of the stuff that comes up for you understandably when your kid comes out like you might actually make them feel so bad right now so like maybe come to a parent support group mm-hmm, like you can say right. and i think that's a really great model right especially when we're talking about literal kids like kid kids right yeah, like we don't yeah, want children. them to be caught uh, above anything right when they're scared and afraid about whether they're going to be accepted scared of being in the world now right and parents are scared too it's like hey maybe find an adult place to deal with all of that it also feels a little bit like a go collect your people kind of a moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. You know, you you are going to need to process some like uncomfortable things. And 
it's like meeting people where they are. I've never been to a PFLAG support group, obviously, but I imagine it, I would hope that it's sort of a safe place for people to like say the really offensive things and like the very uncomfortable questions that would absolutely be terrible to say to your kid. But like, you need a place to air that and to have somebody kind of like meet you there and take you along before you then go back to your um, kids. But now it feels like there's a lot more... Um, political advocacy to be done on behalf of the children, children, as we've talked about with all of these, um, you know, bills going through state legislatures. I read a really good article um, in the Washington Post called Our State is at War with Our Family, Clergy with Trans Kids Fight Back. It's by Ariana Yunjung Cha. Um, And it's about a Mennonite pastor, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi, and a reform rabbi. Uh, It's not a joke <laughs> do they walk into the a bar house. they walk into the pews and they walk into the state house and are uh just supporting their children in yeah. part by advocating against these bills and you know a, a lot of these arguments right now are, or a lot of the sort of propaganda being presented by the right has to do with quote-unquote parents rights and so of course a group with the word parents in its acronym is is such a, a great it's in such a great position to Mm -hmm. sort of fight back against that narrative about like, what parents are you talking about? It's only parents that don't support their kids that are trying, that are uh, having their rights expanded and parents that are supportive of their children are having their Mm. rights curtailed. And it's true under the law, parents have like constitutionally recognized, you know, discretionary power that like, greatly exceeds the kind of power we ever have over other people like in any other situation so it's like mine as well right mine as well Mm -hmm. because like parents rights could be pro lgbt but i think that's part of this like okay we've been talking about what's changed maybe what kind of hasn't changed and where we are now but i kind of i i think i'm curious in what you sort of i mean i love that p flag did that that's so smart i'm so glad they did i also know that i feel really worried about like not just how much that puts on the shoulders of parents, right? That parent advocacy is the only advocacy. You know, I was thinking that one thing that was different in the 1970s is that youth activism was really powerful. The Mm. voting age was lowered in 1971 from 21 to 18 in the 26th Amendment. And one of the reasons why that people, historians credit that change is that Students for a Democratic Society, young people earned so much political clout in the 60s, largely by opposing the war in Vietnam. Mm. And they had flexed that muscle. They had a lot of political clout. And so the spirit of the era was like, well, it's true. 18-year-olds should be able to vote, right? Mm. And we live in a really different era. I mean, I think that, you know, the youth activists who have organized around mass shootings and school shootings are a powerful example of youth activism. I think also, you know, the movement for black lives includes a lot of young activists. And obviously, there are a lot of cultural perceptions of Gen Z as very politically literate. But, um, you know, it strikes me that one thing that's so hard, right, for the kids being targeted by these bills, whether they're gay or trans, it's hard for them to organize because, yeah. like, we literally, I think we actually value young people's, like, political, um, like, I think we value young people's political power probably a little less than we did in the 70s. Totally. And and I was just thinking about, you know, I, I always feel so glad we've been talking about like statistics and numbers this episode, because there's one that floats around that I've been meaning to go and sort of look at where it comes from and how we know it or not. But so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But that line that we often hear, that 40% Mm -hmm. of unhoused youth are LGBT, 
right? And that's like a contemporary statistic, although I bet it's probably like 10 years old at this point. But, you know, part of what it always reminds me is, okay, this battle over LGBT kids within their families is only concerning the kids who are still part of their families, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. running away from home, like I said, was the default expectation in the 70s. I think the story has changed, but I don't really think the numbers have probably changed as much as we would like to imagine. And I know folks who work in frontline advocacy at LGBT centers, at, you know, um, drop-in centers who work with youth, like the youth themselves have changed. It used to be a lot of young gay boys. Now it's all like young trans girls and trans mm-hmm. girls of color who've been kicked out of home, had to run away from home, who were not safe at home or in their schools and are trying to survive in really difficult circumstances. And part of my frustration with that is like, who on earth is advocating for them? No one. People don't even talk about them. They're basically invisible. And like, you know, I don't mean to minimize what's happening to these other kids who have the protection of their family, but like, have we also kind of lost track of other kinds of LGBT kids? And also like, is part of the problem that the only way we know how to defend them is to protect them as adults. And isn't that like the yeah. reason in the first place that they got kicked out of home because the adults in their life didn't protect them? Do you know what I mean? I just, I really feel frustrated and angry and also scared in this moment that we're even losing the most vulnerable, losing sight of, that is to say, the most vulnerable LGBT youth. Well, one thing I would like to add to that, because I think you're exactly right, is I was thinking a lot about... Um, Sarah Schulman's idea that like marriage equality was really about was driven in a lot in large part by this big desire to reunify the like white middle class family right so like parents straight parents were having these gay kids and that was like disruptive and challenging and upsetting and whatever and so if we introduce marriage as a life model uh, for those gays and lesbians and bisexual folks uh, then there's a way for them to sort of, again, reunify with that family structure and the rupture can be healed and we can go on mm. with our lives, right? And so you have to wonder, to your point, Jules, that like the acceptance that that we are seeing uh, perhaps for gay kids is tied up with that because they're, like, I, I'm speculating a bit, but, I, but I, it seems somewhat clear to me that if you as a parent can imagine that, okay, wasn't expecting a gay kid, I guess, but they're going to get married and it's going to look the same to me anyway. It'll be fine. That that engenders yeah. a kind of easier acceptance than the trans girl child who, who doesn't have that same kind of um, cultural yeah. formation, I guess, to like yeah. slot into like that, yeah. that gender trouble is like challenging in a way that can't be easily healed and so then must be expelled like from the family right literally through through being forced out of the home or running away or whatever um and so it's another one of these ways in which i think marriage equality was a win but yet it like what at what cost like what it what did it actually how did it shape us and our Mm -hmm. families is something worth considering so i think that's something to add to what you were saying i think you're exactly right and i think queer parenthood rights and also the like uh 
slight but but their proliferation of queer parenthood models and like different forms of reproductive technologies has contributed to that too because i know mm-hmm. the stories of a lot of queer friends have been you know parents are upset or whatever they're like we still love you but like we're sad you're never gonna have kids grandchildren mm-hmm. yeah and well now that doesn't have to be the case like plenty of queer people are having kids um and uh, just to your point, Brian, I feel like that also dovetails with the fear-mongering around trans kids' future reproductive lives. Yeah. About, you know, Sterility are they and all of this, going yeah. to have kids when they get older? Because, you know, parents and, and of course, the right is, is so obsessed with controlling people's reproduction and forcing people into reproduction yeah. that it, it feels like oh, of a piece where, you know, if you're, if somebody is not going to have um, a reproductive future, you know, is their life valuable or like, how can we accept the adult they're going to become? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. You've heard it. I've heard it. Maybe we've thought about it or argued about it. The claim that's going around is that the lesbian is in decline, dying out, fading away. And people have been talking about it for generations. And yet lesbians and the political commitments that people once claimed as lesbian are still here. In the recent book, Lesbian Death, Desire and Danger Between Feminist and Queer, Merid Sullivan looks at those observations or fears of lesbian death to explore how our understanding of the lesbian has evolved since the 1970s and how it's often been paired with narratives of death the death of the lesbian bar and other lesbian spaces, the specter of lesbians having a higher risk of breast cancer, the notion of lesbian bed death, the destructive promise of lesbian separatism, and of course, the wielding of lesbian identity as a weapon against trans people by excluding trans women, by suggesting that their very presence in lesbian spaces is violence, and by claiming that trans men and trans masculine people are contributing to the death of the lesbian. But Merritt asks their readers to think bigger about what lesbian means. They write, much of the lamentation of lesbian loss is rooted in attachments to projects that refuse to imagine an expansive definition of lesbian culture or lesbian politics. This book introduced me to new ways of thinking about queer communities today and how the legacy of the lesbian shows up there. Um, It also read me for filth a little bit in the citations. (laughs) Um, So I'm thrilled that Merit is here with us this month to talk about their book. Uh, Merit is an associate professor of women's and gender studies at Loyola Marymount University. Merit, welcome to Outward. Thanks for having me. And um, it's a joy to be in conversation with you specifically, Christina, because your essay from 2016 is so helpful and informative to my argument here. So <laughs> <laughs> informative in terms of what you were saying was wrong, which I really honestly appreciate. Um, and yeah, I mean, it. I when I saw that that piece was cited in your book, I went back and read it and was honestly scared to open the link, not only because I wrote it eight years ago, and I was like, Oh, my God, what a terrible was I a terrible writer back then. But also, (laughs) you know, does the argument hold up? What was I actually saying? Um, But it was so cool to read this book that addresses and confronts a lot of the same things that I was thinking about back then. Um, And so I want to start our conversation with the premise that you confront, which is, you know, 
why has the lesbian as an identity and as a political project so often been said to be dying out or in decline? And what are the kinds of impulses and beliefs that lead people to make that observation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the the big question of the book in many ways. And I'm not sure that I actually answer it in that straightforward of a way. Um, mm. But I try to trace it, actually. I mean, I think I what I argue in the book is that this is actually that the panic um, about the death of the lesbian is actually like an attachment to a certain political promise of lesbian feminism. And I'm certainly not the mm-hmm. first person to argue that, um, but that I think that we need to take seriously what that political promise is and where it exists today. And also that, you know, there's lots of ways in which the 1990s get mapped as the moment that the lesbian dies. I mean, as you've noted, Christina, I think that this is a conversation that persists for the last 50 years, if not longer, but changes in certain ways in different generations and different decades. Um, but I actually map it to, I'm the first to sort of map it to this empirical moment in which lesbians start to be counted <laughs> in this like very demographic mm-hmm. way. And that that's this switch point in which lesbian becomes, uh, you know, literally a demographic that the state, that the National Institutes of Health has an invested interest in, and in that way kind of loses its political venom. And so part of what I'm arguing Mm. is that it's actually not, like lesbian identity is not in decline, (laughs) but this anxiety about where then do we put our political fervor that we have invested in this concept of lesbian feminism and how do we keep that, where is that today? How do we keep that going today? in many ways, I argue that it's actually radical trans women, lesbians who are keeping that promise alive. Um, it's counter the narratives or counter the, you know, uh, true and violent weaponization of lesbian identity against trans communities and trans women specifically. Yeah, I mean, your book was honestly kind of a balm for me because I, I feel like when I've thought about and heard people talk about this question. And the way I see it most show up in my life is people talking about the end of Mm -hmm. lesbian bars. I feel like every couple years, there's, you know, a a piece about the end of lesbian bars. In DC, we actually have two new ones. Same with in LA. Um, And there's this really like- Two new ones that opened within two weeks. Like in oh the yeah, last month. <laughs> okay, so I visited LA in December. Went to a really good restaurant there um, in Silver Lake, and then uh, like a couple weeks later, they're like, "Now that restaurant's turning into yeah. a lesbian wine bar." I was like, "I go there once, and it immediately right. becomes a lesbian wine bar." That's I'm not solely responsible for the lesbian renaissance in LA, but I, I'm not saying I'm not responsible for that. <laughs> but anyway, it's you know I feel like these anxieties live in the back of a lot of people's heads mm. without having any sort of guide to be like, no, look, what are you actually mm-hmm. attached to when you're worried about lesbian going away? And you write that we're kind of attached to all mm-hmm. the wrong things or that the thing that's actually dying are the parts that mm-hmm. failed and mm-hmm. that we shouldn't be concerned about letting those things go. And so when, you know, Uh, you have this very narratively satisfying moment in the chapter about lesbian bars where you're like, they said the last lesbian bar in San Francisco died. And it's actually not about the closing (laughs) of the Lex. It's about the closing of whatever was before the Lex. I don't remember the name of it. But your point is that, you know, these things come in waves and often don't have to do with like the death of a given identity. But Mm. what, what are those things that you see us? I don't want to say us. I don't want to pour words in people's mouths. Um, 
what are the things that you believe people are attached to that that we should actually let yeah, go? Yeah, I mean, I think space is absolutely one of them. And another place where I juxtapose mm. this is the Michigan Women's Music Festival, which, Christina, your essay is part of this like wider yeah. moment that I'm marking in 2015, um, that... Yeah. You know, the closing of the Mishfest, people are like, well, this is it. This is the end. But, you know, I live in Southern California. Thousands. I think I exaggerate it perhaps in the book. I think it's not actually 100,000, but it's tens of thousands of lesbians go to Palm Springs every fall for Dinah Shore. Palm Springs. And it's right. a huge yeah, you know, yeah. music festival. But no one's pointing to there and saying, oh, look, actually, lesbian persists. And part of that is because while Dinah may have its own kind of politics, it doesn't carry... Well, one, it's 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 very commercial, but also, you know, radically inclusive. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me take back that use of radically, but it's avowedly inclusive. <laughs> 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 and in that way, it's not attracting the same kind of um, the same kind of vitriol that marks that space as one that is exclusionary or doing this work. And so um, I think space is a place where people hold on to, but they're but they misidentify that attachment as an attachment to the space rather than thinking about how that space, you know, may have, I mean, so the other thing that I think people don't know about is we look back to the history of Olivia records, which is sort of marked as the precursor to a lot of um, lesbian separatists work. Well, Olivia records is now Olivia cruises, like one of the top three, and I actually <laughs> didn't know that those came from the same place. Right? I was just like, why does everything lesbian yeah. name itself Olivia? Olivia. But that <laughs> same company. And, and it is now, you know, a multi-million dollar corporate entity um, engaged in, in, you know, there's a story, I'm going to like forget it now, but of, of one of these cruises showing up at like some small island and like single-handedly bringing the economy back on track because they like dump a bunch of lesbians to spend their American <laughs> dollars. And so... Part of what oh I'm God. arguing too is that this, that even in this lamentation of the loss of space, there's a failure to go back and think like, okay, well, what was, what were people actually trying to do with this space in ways that were attempting to be radically anti-capitalist, anti-heteropatriarchal, mm-hmm. anti-racist, yeah. and now is actually more about how do we keep lesbians in a kind of urban market economy? Yeah, you also point out the. Um dissonance between like two very common arguments people make about the closing of the lesbian bar, which is that one, lesbians don't make as much money as straight people or as gay men so that they can't keep bars open. But also two, that lesbians have become so mainstreamed that like they're spending their money elsewhere. It's like both of those things probably aren't true True. or or they're (laughs) part of this greater like um, capitalist system in which people are choosing where to go out. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, yeah, what you're saying is like the thing we miss about the bars or whatever is not necessarily like the actual space that they were in, but what sorts of um, political precisely they held. Yeah. And the Lex is a great place to go because what's come after the Lex is this bar called Nighthawk that's like named for this 19th century yeah. woman. Uh, woman i forget you know she was like a major leader and shaker in in san francisco and they Mm. when they opened they touted that their head bartender was a woman and you know i think many of their employees are queer i mean at san francisco you can't have a business and not have many queer employees um but it's owned by gavin newsom's restaurant group and so like in a certain way on paper this new iteration this new 
thing in the space could look like it's doing this kind of lesbian work of like foregrounding women and et cetera. But it's actually, it has no, none of the politics that produced lesbian bars and lesbian spaces in the first place. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned earlier uh, that 2015 is sort of an important moment in the book, and I noted that as well. I wonder if you could just, for our listeners, take us through what happened in 2015 uh, and what sort of themes uh, that you draw out of it for the rest of the book, because it, it did seem like an yeah, important moment. Um, and so 2015, I mark in a number of ways because it's the closing of Michigan Women's Music Festival, the closing of the Lex, um, but also the legalization of gay marriage. And... I actually think, mm, correct me if I'm right. wrong, I actually think that the um, Laverne Cox on the cover of Time was 2014, but it's sort of in, 14, I sort of yeah. marked that in this whole area. Um, yeah. And so in a certain way, what I'm, well, so all of those things are happening at the same time and get kind of lumped in together. And part of what I'm arguing is that the this closing of Michigan and the Lex, which is happening for very different reasons, but both get marked as these moments of the death of the lesbian, there's also, you know, the legalization of gay marriage is sort of like for a specific kind of normative gay politics, like that's the end of the line. And mm -hmm. here we are. But yeah, then yeah. It, in many ways, because that's the end of the line, there's now in a, in a complicated and fucked up way, there's now space for us to talk about trans politics in new ways that we haven't been able to before. Yeah. And the transgender, the Laverne Cox on the cover of Time, marking this moment of the transgender tipping point, is sort of marks that, um, culturally at least. And that becomes this, while of course turf antagonisms have been there for 50 years, if not longer, it marks this like sort of easy pivot in which this claim mm. that tran that the exp expansion of trans identities and specifically moving away from the kinds of um, butch FTM border wars of the 90s can enter a kind of common sense language in the culture. I love I love that there are these touchstone moments because it's so helpful to be reminded where the reference points are for these yeah. things that have become, yeah. you know, kind of diluted or peddled as common sense. And so, I mean, one of my favorite parts of the book is how you talk about what kind of separatist 70s lesbian or separatist feminism, which is so often the thing kind of lurking behind people who are like, I'm a radical mm -hmm. feminist mm -hmm. on the internet in 2023, right? Or people who use lesbians defensively um, to attack trans people. But I love how you talk about basically separatism as this like particular version of defensive lesbian politics and imagination that like really kind of only work for mm -hmm. white people. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you like share a little bit about that um, and talk, talk us through that a little bit? Because I just found that so helpful. Like it gave language to both like a life experience I've had, but also helped me understand better why it's so tricky, like tackling this issue today, right? Because like the people who are presenting the endangered lesbian and say they're calling on the legacy of the seventies and that makes them radical, like aren't also being like, and it's because I'm mm -hmm. white, right? Like that doesn't come <laughs> up in the way they talk. So could you sure. kind of walk us through how you see that being about a kind of history of Yeah, of absolutely. Yeah, thanks Jules. I think that's such a good question because um, I'm gonna like, I guess kind of answer it in two ways. Cause one of the things back to this question of like, where does the anxiety attach? I also think it attaches very much to mm. the whiteness and to the ways in mm. which white 
lesbians or the ways in which being a lesbian in the 70s in a political way could sort of override your whiteness in a certain way. Um, I don't know if that's exactly how I want to phrase it, but in the sense like it's the 70s, the feminine, you know, the mainstream feminists are saying you're a lavender menace, the homosexuality is in the DSM, etc. And so, you know, this, this, fervor this political fervor is built from a real lived experience and i'm not saying that lesbians white or not are not oppressed today but there's a certain way in which the mainstreaming of gay and lesbian life has made it such that you know white lesbians can very easily live (laughs) without encountering that kind of those kinds of oppressive structures Mm. and so i do think that there's you know I, i do kind of diagnose this as a kind of attachment to the this moment in which you could still claim to be sort of outside of whiteness. And I don't mean that necessarily in a racial way, but Mm. I mean that in the sense of like, you can claim to still be a part of the, you know, marginalized under heteropatriarchy. And of course, women, all women can claim that, but I just, um, I should have like a better crisper answer to this because I actually think that this is the really important part of that (laughs) attachment. Well, I don't think you're threatening it in the same way. As maybe Precisely. it was back then. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, you know, I end the book by by looking at the global movement for black lives and saying, like, is this not a lesbian movement? Because mm-hmm. it's not it's not that it's like mm-hmm. lesbian right. rights today and only lesbian rights now, but actually it is rooted in anti-capitalist, anti-racist, anti-heteropatriarchal commitments that are commitments of for destroying the world as we know it now and building a new one. And so what I do in the separatism chapter is I point to that, like, our attachment to separatism was not this idea of, like, this utopic farm that we could all go live on that was primarily white (laughs) lesbians who, you know, the the very idea of opting out of capitalism Mm -hmm. or opting out of society means you have to have a whole lot of capital (laughs) to be able to do that. Of capital, Um, And so it's not the utopic vision of, you know, the farm where we all get to disappear, but actually it was this commitment to destruction to saying this world does not work and we will not accept it mm-hmm. and 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 in many ways I, I try to point to the ways in which uh that kind of lesbian feminism for feminist fervor wasn't actually about like going to the separatist commune but was about the destruction aspect and um mm-hmm. i juxtapose so you know especially in the last 10 years, we've had a major sort of cultural resurgence of reading and thinking with the Kambahi River Collective and the, the sort of mm-hmm. narratives um, to follow Claire Hemings that feminist theory tells about itself is that the Kambahi came along to say like, nope, this separatism issue is too white and it's too, you know, um, reductive. And that's true, but that that narrative tends to also make the claim that like Kambahi was like, Oh, you silly white feminists. Like we're going to be, we're going to do a nicer version of this. Mm -hmm. And I instead point to the work of Kambahi and other feminists of color, especially Pat Parker and Cheryl Clark to be like, no, you still get all the same destructive fervor there. I mean, Cheryl Clark's lesbianism and active resistance is my favorite text of all time in Mm. lesbian feminist texts. Mm. And it is, I mean, she says, women are held captive, uh, I should have the quote in front of me, but to, you know, terror in a spray of semen. And it's just like, oh, yeah, you know? Um, (laughs) And so I think that there's, that's the sort of moment that I, that, that I look back to that Mm -hmm. like this, actually the promise of lesbian separatism 
was not the promise of escaping to like this rural idyllic life, but actually was the promise of just the destruction, the complete destruction of the capitalist patriarchy, to use the language mm. of Kabahi. Mm. One of the more fascinating chapters of your book for me was the one about lesbian breast cancer activism, yeah. which is something I knew very, very little about. Um, but just for our listeners, um, basically right around the height of ACT UP and AIDS activism, there was a study that came out showing that essentially lesbians drank and smoked more than straight women. Is that right, Merid? Um, and it extrapolated, they, you know, the, the researcher, I guess, extrapolated it out to claim that lesbians had a two to three times higher risk of breast cancer. As you can imagine, all the headlines that came out reporting on this were all misleading and ended up implying more or less that lesbians as a biological group, right, right. there was something about them <clears throat> that made them more susceptible to breast cancer. And so you mark this, Merit, as one of many moments that contribute to the public understanding mm. of the lesbian as a demographic category mm. that can demand inclusion uh, and recognition from the state rather than sort of just subverting the structures that exist. Um, so can you tell us what exactly was going on in the public discourse at that time and how lesbian groups activated in yeah, response absolutely. to it? And um, thanks, because that chapter is actually in many ways where the whole book begins. Um, because prior to starting oh. my PhD, I actually worked in lesbian breast cancer research and I worked mm -hmm, oh, and um, I worked. You weren't the one that no, did that misleading no. study. <laughs> but that misleading study led to um, it was so that the study was so interesting because they actually drew their data from this lesbian health study that was done in the 1980s um, that was actually hmm. largely done in bars. So like shocker, you find out lesbians are drinking and smoking. Hmm. <laughs> they drink more. But, um, <laughs> They took that data and it then uh -huh. led into this, it, and it's coming out of the AIDS crisis and this like sort of switch point moment in the early nineties. Mm -hmm. um, it's before the cocktail, but when, you know, they're trying to start to think gay and lesbian health more largely and the NIH sort of um, pulls in this study and they say lesbians have higher rates of breast cancer. And it leads to this sort of policy paper saying like, we need to invest more in um, lesbian health and scholars soon thereafter say, you know, quickly, the whole public health research community is like, this is not, this is not how it's actually working. But in fact, it's that lesbians don't trust their doctors. And so they're less likely to be engaged in screening, um, early screening, etc. But it did lead to, you know, it becomes this moment in which you can justify studying lesbians. And so it led to a huge explosion in funding for studying lesbian breast cancer. It's also just a wider moment in which there's this shift in lesbian, I'm sorry, breast cancer research. Oh, um, you know, like we think of when we talk about the Komen Foundation, et cetera, we think that they're like funding ways to cure breast cancer, but they're mostly funding ways to treat breast cancer. Breast cancer is like, you know, a huge market. Um, and also to think, this is a moment of a real shift to thinking about quality of life issues for folks after breast cancer. Mm -hmm. I could probably talk for a whole other podcast about mm -hmm. all of that. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's where I start. And it's in part that, you know, I, I share much of your narrative that you shared in your 2016 essay, Christina, that in the, um, between 2007 and 2010, when I was working on this study, I was also a, you know, 20 something queer person, very involved in um, 
dike marches and camp trans. I mean, I never actually went to Michigan, but in the like back home support of camp trans and thinking about the Michigan Women's Music Festival. And there's also, this is, you know, when there's this renewed fervor and this like, no one wants to be a lesbian, lesbian is dying. Mm. And yet here I am going to work every day, studying lesbians, (laughs) like literally counting lesbians. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so it's actually in large part that experience as well as, um, you know, part of what our study was very quantitative, um, but it was phone-based surveys. And so even though we were actually filling out like, you know, Likert scales over the phone, the folks we were talking to would tell us so many stories. And so many of the folks we talked to were like, yes, when I had cancer, it was hard, but losing my breasts was like the best thing that ever happened to me. And so I was really trying to think actually about um, this question of breastedness (laughs) and top surgery and mastectomies and whatnot. But that's what led me into trying to look at lesbian breast cancer politics starting in the 70s. And that's where I sort of like discovered both this switch point and this, Mm. you know, reminded myself of the the absolute joy that I get reading so many of these lesbian separatist manifestos from the 70s. Mm. Another thing that that I really appreciated in this book, Merid, is the new way that you frame, new to me at at least, um, the new way that you frame um, trans-exclusionary radical feminist TERFs um, and the sort of political legacy that they carry forward, especially as they're talking about uh, lesbians as, you know, a victim of trans identities and trans politics. And you write that, you know, their legacy is not one of the lesbian politics, but they're actually claiming a conservative and reactionary politics. And I don't think I've ever read somebody put it so like declaratively and concisely, but it's it was so clear to me once I read it that that's exactly what's happening. And um, can you just talk about what you hope people take away mm-hmm, from that absolutely. framing? I mean, I think that, and I don't think I state this so clearly in the book, although I, I'm glad that it it sounds like it comes across very clearly, but <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it felt that um, way to me. I'm wor- So I think of TERFs, TERFs, TERFs themselves as kind of like the Westboro Baptist Church is like a very small but very vocal mm-hmm. minority. But I think that that expands yeah. out into what I call elsewhere TERF ideology. And TERF ideology sort of follows mm-hmm. on that, that same kind of like logic of like, I'm not a feminist, but I believe in women's rights. And you're like, well, then you're a feminist. And it's the uh-huh. same way that people can pick up on this mm-hmm. idea of like, well, I'm not transphobic. I'm, I you know, believe that trans women are women, but there really is something going on with this this lesbian space thing. And that, the way that that has become mm. a kind of like common sense or the very fact that to it, it often feels that to even talk about lesbian politics, you have to immediately disavow turf ideology. Um, and it's something that I talk about my own, right. you know, the, the anxieties that I have writing a book on lesbian <laughs> um, yeah. that... You know, even actually in the first, when I first sent the book out for review, part of the feedback I got was that you're not talking enough about TERFs. <laughs> and I was like, really? I'm, I'm actually oh, saying, wow. whole, basically what I'm saying is like, we need to a actually lot. disavow this. We can't take seriously that this is even a question and that we have to disavow the yeah. fact that this is even offered as a question in the strongest possible terms. And we do that precisely to hmm. maintain the vision of le- lesbian feminist politics as I identify it. 
by by saying, you know, we need to disavow that it's a question. The question being, is yeah, the lesbian is, dying? Isn't there something going on with this relationship between lesbian and trans? And I think that, you know, what that does okay, is it assumes yeah. at a baseline that this category lesbian has no relationship to this category trans other than an antagonistic one. And I just want to say plainly and straightforwardly that that is the opposite of true. And what I see in my world is that that mm-hmm. actually the capaciousness of lesbian is something that gets carried forward in trans politics, trans spaces, trans lives, and trans communities. And so, you know, mm-hmm. um, if anyone who truly feels like lesbian identity is dying, well, find the trans lesbians around your neighborhood because they're keeping these politics alive. I am devastated that that's all the time we have for this conversation. Um, but again, Merid Sullivan's book is called Lesbian Death, Desire and Danger Between Feminist and Queer. It's available wherever you get your reading material. Merid, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. It's just, it's such a dream to be in conversation with all of you. So thank you. Clearly, there is so much at stake here. And I think one thing I really appreciate about this conversation, you know, is that there's so much that we could be talking about that's being drowned out in this moment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And actually, you know, comparing it to past generations feels really clarifying to me. Okay, that is just about the end of the show. But before we go, as always, we have your monthly updates to the gay agenda. Um, Jules, I see yours here on the sheet, so I'm actually going to go to you first because I want to hear about it. So, so bad, Jules. What do you have? Okay, so I, this is very on topic because we've been talking about P flag. We've been talking about you know the transgender menace um, to <laughs> to so many things. So my gay agenda item is Pedro Pascal's Instagram. Um, uh, no, it's not just because he's hunky, um, although he is. Don't even get me started about that. Um, but, you know, Pedro Pascal, who is incredibly famous overall, right? But lately, I think probably for, is it the, is it called The Last of Us? The Last of Us. I haven't, I haven't started watching it. The, the show that is like making gay people cry and making yes. conservatives <laughs> threaten to cancel the HBO Max subscriptions. They yeah, have. yeah. So Pedro Pascal sexy, interesting, dapper guy, um, posted five days ago on his Instagram a picture of, well, three pictures on on the grid of um, inclusive, trans-inclusive pride flags. And just this is the, I'm going to read the caption. The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. Hashtag LGBTQIA. Mm-hmm. Okay, so my gay agenda I've item is I want this. everyone. Found. Yeah, I want everyone to go and look at this. Okay, because the internet blew Wait, up. They were like three different photos on the hmm. grid. Uh, or the it's same? a it's a photo with three. Like you oh, can scroll slides. three. Oh, yeah, slides. Yeah, 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 yeah. And everyone was like, "OMG, Pedro Pascal officially bisexual confirmed." <laughs> right. Because, like, you know, he's a hot, comfortable, confident guy. And yeah. people are like, yo, like, come on, let's be real, right? Fashions, um, fashions, yeah. So my instruction for your gay agenda is to investigate. Um, what do you think <laughs> the LGBT content here? And here's the P flag. Here's this more sober and I think lovely, you know, possibility. His sister is trans. <laughs> okay, oh, so, yeah. And they love each other. He's so yeah. warm and supportive. He takes her to events. They've been on the red carpet together. She's amazing. She's seems absolutely gorgeous and stunning and so like you know 
probably he's also just like being like, yeah, because, you know, The Last of Us has brought up all these questions about like, this video game wasn't so gay. They're shoving mm-hmm. it down our throats, right? And Pedro Pascal, I think very slyly and like great social media was kind of like, I'm gonna be enigmatic and provocative, right? So maybe also he's winking at all of us who are horny for him, no matter what <laughs> our gender or sexuality <laughs> is. Maybe that's all good with the Pascal. But I also think it's probably a sibling love moment. But I just suggest go check out the Instagram post for yourself study it reflect on it ask what do you want from Pedro (laughs) (laughs) what don't I want from him I know well that's the thing right I would take a lot Game of Thrones he was that hot guy on Game of Thrones that was highly sexual and I'm pretty sure queer was queer on the show yeah I believe so yeah Yeah. all right noted (laughs) (laughs) Um, Christina what have you got for us Um, I'm recommending a book it's new out this month. It's called Confidence by Raphael Frumpkin, a queer and trans author. Yeah. Um, this is a real fun uh, grifter novel. Um, it's a story of this like big corporate wellness scam run by two guys who met at a juvenile delinquent boot camp. Um, the narrator is uh, gay and just fully in love with his sort of co-conspirator. The two of them are lovers for a while, um, but it's clear to the reader that um, Orson, who is the object of um, the narrator's affection and sort of the hot charismatic leader of this scam, um, that he doesn't quite return the infatuation as much as he's just grateful to have somebody to orchestrate the less glamorous parts of the scam and maybe mm. he's just opportunistic. That's important. Um, it's such uh, important to have that that member of your scam. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> um, the drudge It's work. such a, a good, like, skewering of, like, Silicon Valley mm. startup and wellness cultures. And in addition to, like, the very um, millennial-specific generation of scammers, the product that they're hawking is, like, a sort of headpiece that promises to create a sense of calm and well-being mm. by magnetically mm. stimulating your brain. Lovely. We'll go crazy wow. for it. And then Orson, the like maybe queer, but maybe just uh, opportunistic guy becomes the head of something that's like a cross between a cult and a pyramid scheme. <laughs> it's so good. It's like uh, lightly suspenseful, really fun, um, pretty sharp, book about these morally bankrupt characters who just try to see how far they can push their luck until everything implodes. Um, again, it's called Confidence by Raphael Frumpkin, a great queer novel of the winter and, and you know, bring it to all your spring break plans. Ooh, I might Speaking pick that up. You art. should. It's yeah, good. I, I think you'll it. like it, Brian. Yeah, I'm looking, to, I'm looking for something new, actually. So that's, that sounds perfect. Yeah. What about you? What are you <clears throat> recommending? Um, uh, I'm going to be a little indulgent. I have three quick ones this month. Oh my god! Um, wow, I couldn't choose. Settling in. I just couldn't choose. They're very short, though. They're very short. So I'll go, I'll go quickly. The first is just an Instagram follow. Um, the handle is at Queer News Daily. Um, so if you don't already follow this, this is the journalist and a friend of mine, um, Nico Lang. Um, they are an award-winning, excellent, excellent journalist of many years. Um, back when everyone was going to leave Twitter like two months ago, remember when that was going to happen? Um, Uh Nico actually left and moved their focus over to Instagram and the coverage is indeed daily. It's been like an indispensable place to keep up with the just like 
never-ending deluge of anti-trans and queer legislation, and also how queer folks are organizing to fight back. So I found it just like super, super helpful. Um, Nico posts like multiple times a day. So you, it, it's, it's a great follow if you want more of that information in your feed. Um, second thing quickly, uh, we did not talk about the Michael Knowles CPAC eradicating transgenderism mm-hmm. thing this month. Uh, but I wanted to flag a really helpful piece that came out in response to that from Julio Serrano on the history mm-hmm. of that term that uh, transgenderism, I mean, that, that was oh, cool. really interesting. It, it shares a sort of in community meaning of that in the nineties and how it emerged. And then of course, how it's been weaponized by the right now. Um, And so the title of that piece is just history of the word transgenderism and it's on uh, Serrano's medium blog. Lastly, I have to recommend my colleague, Christina's excellent (laughs) groundbreaking reporting on Florida governor, Ron DeSantis's most shocking move of late, his apparent embrace of the high heel. Um, (laughs) If you have not read this expose yet, you need to check out our <laughs> show page for the link. Uh, get get over on slate.com, the magazine, and uh, you will have your binary ideas of footwear seriously problematized. Those are my three. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> Pulitzer committee, take note. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Check in on that. Um, all right. That is the end of the show uh, for this month. Please, as always, send us your feedback and topic ideas to outwardpodcast.slate.com, or you can reach out via Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. Just wanted to put in a little plug here for Slate Plus at the end of the show. Just a reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like The Waves and Working, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. If you want to learn more about that, go to slate.com slash outwardplus. Our show was produced this month by the wonderful Morgan Givens, while June has been out working on her own lesbian book. Many, many, many thanks from us to Morgan. If you like Outward, please uh, subscribe in your podcast app. Tell all your friends, your parents, if they're supportive (laughs) about it. If they want to be supportive, they have to follow us. Tell them that. (laughs) Uh, And can also please rate and review the show. We would love to hear reviews from your sweet moms. um, uh, And that helps us uh, have other people find the show. Um, Outward will be back in your feeds on April 19th. Until then, bye, Christina and Jules. Bye, Brian. Stay gay, everybody.